I can't begin without marking that uh, 2019, this is my 20th year at VTS. I remember the, the first day that I actually came into the, the chapel at the time. Uh, I was a bit of a theological refugee uh, that, that arrived here. I had uh, left my job in service of the Cardinal Archbishop in Boston. Um, I was working for the Catholic Church at the time, uh, having finished um, my master's work in uh, Catholic systematic theology uh, and went to work uh, for my church in which I thought I would spend the rest of my life. Um, and there's a movie made about what was going on then uh, and the diplomats for the Anglican Communion known as the Society of St. John the Evangelist uh, greeted me in Cambridge and uh, directed me that I start a new life in a new communion and come here. And I remember walking into the old chapel, um, still wondering if the Episcopal Church could be a home um, for someone who had within 48 hours kissed the ring of the Cardinal of Boston. Uh, and I, I remember looking at the, the altar and I couldn't believe and was excited to see that the candle lit, the real presence of Jesus and, and the words written above the high altar, that the incense of words that this place chose were those to be an evangelist about the real presence. I thought, this, this is the place I could stay. I can't believe that was 20 years ago. In Jewish biblical interpretation, there are four classic types of exegesis used by the rabbis in the Hebrew Bible, uh, known as the Tanakh, of course. Um, the four types are methods, are ones maybe you've played with or been introduced to here, uh, and they begin with peshat, meaning the plain sense of a passage. What is actually happening? The literal interpretation. You're allowed, of course, to have deeper interpretations, but you, you have to begin with the Peshat. You can't skip over what's actually happening. Don't get stuck there, but start there. <laughs> As an evangelist, I listen to a lot of sermons in many Christian denominations, uh, and I can tell you that if you sit through enough sermons in the contemporary Episcopal Church, uh, you will notice that any bold or jarring texts in the Old or New Testament that are about sin or final judgment, uh, usually our siblings in the pulpit have a tendency to uh, skip over the Peshat. <laughs> the literal or the straightforward interpretation. They even belittle at some times the biblical passages um, and taking them literally as, as a sign of childishness with prideful declarations that we as Episcopalians do not take the Bible literally. And I admit myself too, all too often, usually out of self-defense, tend to tame or even mute the blunt force of literal interpretations of texts that judge my choices or convictions and find me wanting. And the words and warnings of this passage today, offering us an image of the final judgment of nations before 9 a.m., are just the kinds of biblical words that the Episcopal preacher usually warns against taking literally before they warn to take seriously. 
And the questions that come from naming the plain sense of this gospel passage are intense and in line with the examination of our souls that is the definition of a holy Lent. How dare we say, as we leave so many Eucharists, that we go forth to love and serve the Lord when we fail to recognize Jesus living and in many cases suffering in the lives of the vulnerable around us? What if the prashat of this passage is simply that we will be judged for ignoring Christ in others? To help us avoid disregarding the straightforward warning of this passage, our tradition has given us an entire baptismal vow. Yes, to seek and serve Christ in all persons. And yet, every single person in this room went to bed last night knowing that there is at least one person in your life suffering from many kinds of hunger and thirst, levels of illness, physical and mental, depths of loneliness in prisons, actual or social. It is tempting today, amid the many temptations of daily life that we name and engage in this desert season of Lent, to ignore the peshat of today's parable because its siren is that the sins of abandoning Christ and others grieves the Holy Spirit and shrinks our participation in the redemption of the world. But why do we, why do I, fail to recognize the actual life of Jesus. In my Catholic upbringing, the red candle is lit. In the people around me and in the people who are suffering around me, why am I so consistently unfaithful to this baptismal vow? Is it just that I am too busy, too tired, too focused on my own needs? Is it merely or only because of my lack of attention to others? I do think a kind of spiritual attention deficit disorder is at play in our digital culture, in my life, and perhaps in yours. But I have also come to believe that there is something else at work in my lack of work to seek and serve Christ in those that I see suffering around me. My friends, I don't just think it's that we are distracted. I think there is a part of us that is not able to see Christ in others because we do not, I do not, have a practice of seeing Christ in my own life despite Paul reminding me that it is only Christ in me that is the hope of glory. Oh sure, I believe in God. I pride myself actually in having all kinds of very interesting conversations all around campus, uh, all day. Talking to other people about their ideas about God. On a seminary campus, it is all too easy to feel surrounded by God talk and church stuff. We are immersed in our religion. But do I receive and relate to Christ within my interior life? 
Do I use my personal agency to practice kenosis and empty intentionally parts of my life and make room for the living God? Am I a red candle lit? In Lent, we are called together to practice this intensity that we might do it throughout the year naturally. But what does this look like? A solid study of evangelism rightly includes an intense study of the martyrs. I notice in all the glossy handouts and swag of happy t-shirts and catchphrases on refrigerator magnets produced by our denomination these days about evangelism and evangelism training, there isn't much mention of the blood of the martyrs. This is an observation, not as much an accusation. I serve on the presiding bishop's cabinet for evangelism, so I am in this room trying to make martyrs great again. (laughs) The voice known to be grumpy, yelling that everyone should get on the lawn of the first three centuries of the church. And this amnesia in our ambient excitement of evangelism in our church right now is both tragic and mission-defeating. It is very popular right now instead to have a rather shallow sense of evangelism, something new, or worse, seeing it as something medicinal to cure a shrinking church. But in reality, a spirit-led understanding and experience of evangelism can actually help us avoid the warning of ignoring Christ found in today's gospel. Yes, as an evangelist, I believe an understanding of evangelism is a hermeneutic for any passage in Scripture. But we must first remember this definition of the, of the word martyr, martis, the sense that it means witness, But stay with me for a minute here, because it's very important to understand what witness means. Be careful not to make the mistake of thinking that a witness is only someone who loves God, who is witnessed by others for their love of God, or that witnessing is about telling other people about God. This is the addiction our denomination has for extroversion, not evangelism. According to Renewal Works, our church is about 70% introverted, and our church leadership higher than that. So we're talking about something we're not. It's a sort of aspirational conversation about evangelism, that it is about being a witness to other people about your belief in God. Now, I do know that some of you who have read the second and third century accounts of martyrdom in your classes might have come across the story of Perpetua and Felicitas. So let's go there. In the account that we believe is largely given to us by Perpetua, a sort of learned person about her and the martyrdom as well of Felicitas, who was a simple and common person, there is a lesson that could help us understand today's passage and our passage through a holy Lent. Remember, this time of of persecution is happening for for many reasons against Christians, not the least of which is they're being blamed for horrible things happening in the empire, their their cultish behavior, which did not acknowledge the the pantheon that other Romans did. They were blamed uh, for plagues, for things like the great fire of Rome. 
but they were put to death ultimately for their faith. But in Perpetua's account of her death, which is wonderful, by the way, if you're looking for good reading before 9 a.m. in the morning, Perpetua is such a bad, strong person that she, (laughs) while she's being stabbed by a centurion who her own account says um, was a novice, she actually grabs the the sword and puts it to her own throat because he's giving sort of a B-minus debate presentation. She helps him get it right. And in this sort of elaborate, let's call it extroverted witness, she dies for the faith. And then we have Felicitas, pregnant, giving birth in prison before dying herself, who actually, according to the account, goes through a very painful um, uh, childbirth. And there's this this incredible um, phrase that's said to her by someone, I don't know if they're just trying to be a jerk, But someone says to her at that time, what will you do when you are thrown to the beasts? In other words, if you're just in pain and screaming, giving birth to a child, how are you gonna handle the lions? And she answered, I myself now suffer that which I suffer. But there another shall be in me who shall suffer for me because I am suffering for him. And in her we see a fantastic extension of evangelism and witness. That she is not just witnessing to others, she is witnessing Christ fill the place that she created. She receives Christ into her, that his suffering would come into her and hers would go into him. And that which she cannot handle on her own would happen in her and through her and her being would go through the suffering and therefore the resurrection. Of course she said I can't handle the suffering of martyrdom, but I will choose the Savior I will create a space and his suffering in me will take up my suffering and I will take up his resurrection and glory. Think of her as kind of the introvert evangelist. That's an oversimplification, but the idea is the witness is a witness to what Christ is doing in their life. That's the power, whether or not she posts something fun about Jesus Her choice to receive, to be the manger. Where there is no room in the inn of our digitally distracted lives, she says, come in to me. And that is the witness, that she is the witness. It calls me to look at my life on a seminary campus and say, am I, am I all perpetua, just helping people do their job better in these unbelievable demonstrations of my faith in Christ? Or am I the person in any given moment, in any place, in any corner of this campus, who is saying, create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Come into me, that I might witness you in me. So think of these two women, and think who do you think might be better at recognizing Christ in others? Or who might be less likely to ignore Christ in others? 
my friends. I said at the outset that I believe the reason we ignore Christ living in others is not because we are careless, but because honestly, we do not always nurture spiritual practices of seeing Christ in us, being the tabernacle. I preached last year at um, a very fancy Anglo-Catholic parish. They asked me to preach on Corpus Christi. And they were very happy to say that this was the first time a, a, a woman did something like that for many of them. So I thought long and hard about the sermon, because needless to say, with that setup, there were lots of things I wanted to say. <laughs> Instead, I said to those people, you are the monstrance. How clear is that glass? Is looking at you like looking through a glass dimly? Is that how hard it is to find Christ in your life? There's nothing wrong with a monstrance if it points us to a life that says you are one. My friends, as we hear this passage this morning and you say to yourself, I want so much to avoid the fate of missing Christ in others, there is a deeper question. Yes, that is the Peshat question, but there is something deeper, the sod, the fourth stage of Jewish biblical interpretation, the mysterious, which you create room for and then sit over a scripture across of another person and the practice of sod is silence. Quakers would call it waiting to be moved to speak. That moment where we've created a space, a tabernacle in the desert, we've said, here, speak to us here. That is my prayer for you and for me today, that you carve out that space where not only will you experience the real, the real presence of God, not just ideas about God, the real presence of God, then you are the witness. And trust me, more people will want to be with you, sit with you, seek you in their time of need than someone who knows how to tell someone else where to put the blade. What is the right theology? What is the right liturgical tradition? Be a witness by witnessing. Be the manger. because the Christ you find in you will call you, will be a magnet in every human person to connect with the Christ in them. The concept of suffering is not more powerful than the pull of the Christ in them to the Christ in you. If our magnets are weak, we are given this season of Lent to clear the lens and clear the brush and realize that you are the mission field. Be a witness. Amen.